I'm really fascinated by drones, especially drones with cameras on them. Do you love that kind of perspective you get from that? This is actually one of the videos that we show right before services begin. Some of you didn't know we did that, of course, <laughs> since you're never in here when the service begins. But this was filmed from a drone. Isn't this cool? So you get this perspective that you never see otherwise. This is the Lincoln Center Church. I bet nobody in that church had ever seen it that quite that way. And the Iowa landscape. Wouldn't it be neat if we could see things like that from, because our perspective just seems so limited. And I love it, especially when they, when they show the, the, there's a campus. Look at that. That's, that's Orchard Hill. This is this building we're in with the big orange roof. Yeah, I mean, we're so limited in our perspective. We see, you know, a little bit around us because physically we are so limited. And uh, and we're limited in time. We only see, you know, just this little bit going on right now. We're limited in, in understanding. We don't always understand why things are happening or what they mean. It'd be so neat to have a, a different, a better perspective. Well, that's what James tries to give us in this passage from the letter of James that we're looking at today. He's encouraging us to look at life through God's perspective. God, who is not limited by space, who can look down, you know, like the drone, you know, and sees everything, who's not limited by time, you know, who knows the past and the present and the future, a God who understands everything. James says, you are wrong when you think of life only in these little limited terms. And what he's wanting us to do today is for us to be able to look at life through God's perspective. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump into, the, we're now in the fourth chapter of James. You know, this is part of an eight-week series looking at this New Testament letter that was written by James who was a half-brother of Jesus, a son of Mary and Joseph, and who became a believer in Jesus and was a leader of the Jerusalem church you know, in those very early years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So if you've got a Bible, you want to turn to it with me, that would be great. Otherwise, we'll be here on the screen as well. This is James chapter 4, starting with verse 13. It says, Now listen. And we need to stop just a minute and talk about that because that doesn't come across real, real strong. But um, I understand that th- those words in, in the Greek, the way they were written originally, are, you know, now listen. You know, it's like, it's like your mom. You know, you listen to me, young man, or, you know, the school principal. He's got your finger in your face right there. Now you listen. This is important. James is hitting us hard with this. Now listen, he says. You who say... Well, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city. We'll spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? I mean, you're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, well, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. James is, you know, kind of speaking to all of us, I think, because this is the way we think, this is the way we speak most of the time. And James is pointing out the error in it. We speak and we act as if our lives are just going to go on forever, right? And James says, that's that's so foolish. 
Because the reality is, if you look at life from God's perspective, you see that life is very brief and fragile. And what's the, what's the picture that he paints for us in verse 14? He says, you know, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. A mist covers the ground. You get up in the morning. I prayed that God would give us fog this morning for this very reason. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're driving, you know, and there's the fog. And then what happens? The sun comes out and burns the fog away and it's gone. That's a picture that God gives to us continually throughout the Old and the New Testament because it's so hard for us to, to grasp and to, and to live based on that, to realize that life at best is brief and fragile. Let me read you just one other place from the Old Testament where God again points that out. This is from an Old Testament prophet whose name was Hosea. And Hosea says this, says, Therefore they will be like the morning mist, like the early dew, that disappears like chaff swirling from a threshing floor, like smoke escaping through a window. You get the similarity in all of those images? Now you go out first thing in the morning, the ground is wet with dew, and you go back out a couple hours later, and the ground is dry. Why? What happened to the dew? It's gone. It's gone. He gives the illustration of chaff. I like this because when, when my wife and I, when Sally and I went to Israel several years ago, one of the places we visited just made this come alive. It was a threshing floor. And in Israel, in biblical times, when they wanted to thresh the wheat, they're wanting to separate the chaff from the kernel of wheat. The chaff is that little paper-thin covering on the wheat kernel. And they would, they would prepare a place, usually on the top of a hill. They would have a hard, dirt-packed or stone floor and a, a low wall around it, usually. And they would take the wheat up and they would dump it on this threshing floor. And then they would take winnowing forks, they were called, kind of, uh, kind of like a big flat broom. And they would scoop up the wheat and they would toss it in the air. And what would happen? Even if there were just a little bit of breeze, which there would usually be on the top of these hills, the kernel of wheat would fall to the ground. It was heavy. But the chaff, the chaff, which is almost nothing, would be caught by the breeze and blow away. James is saying, that's, that's the way you ought to view life. It's like the chaff, you know which the wind just carries away. You don't even gather up the chaff when you're done. Pull it into a pile or something. It's gone. It's gone, he says. It's like the morning mist that's there and then it's gone. He says, that's what your life is like. And if you're going to look at life truly, look at it from God's perspective, you've got to realize that life is fragile and brief. Subconsciously, I think we know that. We use those kind of terms, don't we? You say, whoa, does time fly? Where's the time gone? Because we realize that life is going by so fast and it is so short, so brief. And whether you're our oldest member, Christina Rich, whom we buried a couple months ago at the age of 101, or whether you're a 15-year-old high school student tragically murdered in Florida, all of us live under the same reality that life is brief and life is fragile. And James is saying it's foolish for you to live any other way without that in mind. 
In Iowa, I, I just read that the average uh, life expectancy for a man in the United States has actually gone down in the last couple of years. It's now 76.7 years. I'm 73. Actually, though, I did, I did also read that in Iowa, the life expectancy is about a year longer than that. And there was a recent Time Magazine cover story about longevity. And it also said that people who go to church live longer. I'm just saying. <laughs> if that's true, I'm going to live to be 183. So, But the reality, from God's perspective, is that life is short and it's brief. And we need to live our lives with that perspective. The second part of this wrong perspective we have is James says that we live life as if we know the future and as if we can control it. And so what's the example that he gives here? It's of a merchant traveling. Let me read it to you again. He says, you know, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. James says, that's so foolish. You don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring. You know that's true, don't you? In fact, I would get, guess that everybody here has had that experience when the unexpected happens, when tomorrow comes and all of your best laid plans are shot to pieces because something happens over which you had no control. Something happens that you did not expect at all and it changes everything maybe for the rest of your life. James is saying to live your life like this merchant that he tells us about who makes these plans and acts as if he's totally in control. He knows exactly what's going to happen, can control what's going to happen during that next year or two as he goes to the city and he does business and he makes money. You know who I think are the worst at this? Maybe not the worst, but who offend me often this way are politicians who act as if they know what's going to be happening down the road. So every time they pass a bill, right, it's never just for right now. They're saying, over the course of the next 10 years, it's going to bring in this much money. Yeah, like they know what the economy is like, what they know anything about what things are going to be like 10 years from now. Or we're going to pass this, and by 2025, this will happen. You have no idea. And political pundits drive me nuts. I mean, already, already they are talking about who's going to be winning the midterm elections in November. Like they know what's going to happen in November. The election could be tomorrow and they wouldn't have any idea what was going to happen, right? And James is saying that's, that's stupid, it's foolish. But he says it's all so sinful. It's boasting. It's pushing God out of the picture and acting as if you know what's going to happen tomorrow when the reality is you don't. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I told often how that lesson came home to me when my wife Sally and I first moved to Colorado back a long time ago. And we both like to paint. So we decided it would be neat to paint the mountains. So one day... Soon after we'd moved out to Denver, we drove up to Estes Park. We loaded up our, our easels and canvases and paints. And I just had this picture of what it was going to be like. I mean, the scenery there is beautiful. We set up where there was this mountain in front of us and this, this mountain stream flowing. It was so beautiful. 
And, and I just had this picture that, you know, people would come by and we'd be painting and they'd admire our paintings and maybe want to buy them. You know, it was just, it was just going to be this great day. But it wasn't like that at all. It was really windy, for one thing, and really buggy. I don't know if you've ever tried to paint outside, but nothing more frustrating than bugs getting in the oil paint, you know, and kind of dragging it across. So it was just, it, it was a, failure as a day. So before we had planned to end things, we decided, let's just pack up and go home. So we're packing up our stuff in the car. And Sally noticed that I'd gotten some oil paint on the back of my jeans. And good wife that she is, she said, I better sponge that out or it'll dry and I'll never get it out. So she took some paint thinner that we had with us and she, you know, got rid of the paint on the back of my jeans. So we decided since we're heading home early, maybe we'd go through the mountains instead of taking the highway back to Denver. So we're driving through the mountains, and my leg felt like it was going to sleep. You know, it was tingly and everything. And I realized it's that paint thinner on my jeans, and it's really irritating my leg. So I did what any of you would probably have done in the same situation. I mean, it's just me and my wife in the car. So I unfastened my pants and pushed them down around my ankles. Felt so good to get that off my skin. So we're driving through the mountains, me with my pants off, and we come around this bend in the mountain and, and in the road, and there's a guy standing there in the middle of the road holding up a sign saying, driver survey, pull off the road. <laughs> and you think God doesn't have a sense of humor? I'll tell you. There's a truth in that story, and the truth is, you don't know what lies around the bend in the road. You never know. And I know many of you have had that experience, maybe weird like that, maybe tragic kind of experience, where your plans are set and it seems as if life is going to go so smoothly and just the way you intend for it to go, and then suddenly something happens. That happened to me just a couple months ago. In fact, it was on a Sunday morning. It was New Year's Eve, and I was going to be teaching here in the, in the community center that Sunday morning. My daughter Amy, who, um, who lives just a few miles from us in, in Waterloo, had not been feeling well for several days. She has some kind of tough uh, medical issues in her life. And so she called Sunday morning, 4 o'clock in the morning maybe, and she said, I'm in a lot of pain, I can't breathe. So my wife got up and got dressed and went over to Amy's to kind of help her for a while. And she, so I was going to stay and sleep for a couple more hours and then get up and get ready for church and come over here to, to teach. And um, so Sally called in about 6 o'clock or so and said, uh, Amy's really feeling bad. We decided we would call an ambulance and take her to the hospital. I said, uh, that's, a, that's a good idea. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll be done at Orchard around noon. Um, I'll come over to Covenant and see you guys then. So I went ahead and took a shower. I got dressed for church. And then an hour or so later, Sally called again. And she said, um, she said, Amy is dying. She said, the doctors have said that if there's any family, we need to call that they need to come now because she's not going to make it. See, I had that Sunday all planned out. I knew exactly what was going to happen. I'd worked hard on the teaching I was going to give. I was excited about that. I'd go through my usual Sunday routine, you know, teach in the morning, take a nap after lunch, watch Masterpiece Theater in the evening. You know, that's how our Sundays go. Suddenly everything was changed. I didn't know what, I didn't know what to do. I came over to church and, uh, 
I ran into Johnny Rogers, who produces our worship services here, and by that time it was like 8 o'clock, an hour before the services are supposed to begin. I'm supposed to be teaching in here. I said, Johnny, I can't do it. You know, my daughter's dying. And Johnny, bless his heart, he was God's man for me at that point. He said, don't worry about a thing here. We'll take care of it. You just need to go and be with Sally and Amy. And he prayed with me, and I headed over to the hospital. Well, it was, it was serious, and Amy was pretty sick for a long time, but she has recovered well. And after a couple of weeks in the hospital, a few weeks staying with us, you know, she's back home, and we praise God for, you know, how well she is doing. But it just reminded me again that I was doing exactly what all of us do. We act as if, we live as if, we speak as if we're totally in control of what's going to happen. What does James say? He says, you know, when you live that way, when you push God totally out of the, out of the equation, you know, living and acting as if you're the one that's in control, he says, it's not only foolish, it's boasting. And all that kind of boasting, he says, is evil, it's sinful. He says, what you ought to be doing is the way you plan and the way you speak ought to reflect the fact that you know that God is a part of that equation. That you believe and know that God is the one who controls and knows the future. So James is not saying that we shouldn't be planning for the future. In fact, we would be irresponsible if we did not do so. But what he is saying is that we do so with that underlying recognition that we don't know the future but that God does. So I really, over many years here at Orchard Hill, have been encouraging people to recognize the fact that their life is going to end at some point. And I say that not only to people who are my age, I say it to you if you're 25. You ought to be planning for your death. You ought to make funeral arrangements. You ought to make sure that your family members and people you care about know know where things are you need to uh you need to make arrangements for what you want done with your body when you die and i hope that would include organ donation you know and you ought to plan spiritually not just relationally or financially you need to be planning spiritually what's going to happen to you when you die the very songs we sang about remind us of that truth That through the blood of Jesus Christ, God has provided a way by which we might come into a relationship with Him that guarantees that when we die, we will be with God in heaven for eternity. And this poor merchant who makes his plans about what he's going to do and how he's going to make money, James says, is missing the whole point. And so I would lay before us those same words of warning. So then James goes on to give us an illustration, another illustration of what a life can look like when we live as if we're going to live forever. We live as if there's no accountability, as if God isn't even in the picture, and we begin to abuse life. So in chapter 5, James gives us that illustration. So I'm going to read that to you now. Um, now remember, when this, this was written as a letter... So it wasn't divided into chapters and verses, right? It was just, this was the next paragraph. So James has just been saying, you know, live as if life is brief and as if there is accountability for life. And then he goes on to say, now listen, and it's those same two words. It's the tough words, you know, hey, 
Listen to me, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. There too, those words, weep and wail. I mean, James is getting a little themed up here. I mean, you know, he's not just saying you should feel bad about this. He's saying you should weep and wail. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. I mean, James is getting pretty serious about this, isn't he? Eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. This is a picture that James is giving us of when we live life from a totally skewed, inaccurate perspective, not from God's perspective. If you live as if you're going to live forever, if you live as if there's going to be no accountability for your life, then where are you going to find your security? Where, how are you going to live your life? You're going to go for everything you can get. You're going to collect as much money and things and leisure as you possibly can. And why not? If this life is just going to go on, if there is no God in the picture, why not live that way, James says. But the reality, he says, is so different than that. First, there is no security in those things that you've accumulated. Where is your security? Is it in your your bank account? Is it in your IRA? Is it in the things that you've accumulated for yourself? James says, the gold and silver that you've collected, it's corroded. The garments that you have. And in biblical times, that was not only a way that you accumulated wealth, but you showed your wealth through these fine garments that you wore. He said they're being eaten by moths. He said you fattened yourself. Now, in in biblical times, fat people were the wealthy people. And if you wanted to show you were wealthy, that you could live at leisure, that you had plenty of food to eat, you would get fat. James says, you know what that's like? He says that's like a calf, the fattened calf being fattened for slaughter. Because the end is coming and the judgment is coming. And it's so easy for us, if we think that we know the future... To live as if those things that we're counting on are really going to give us security in the days ahead. And chances they're not. They can be gone in an instant. And so you go to bed at night and your spouse dies during the night of a heart attack and it's happened. You make your investment and it seems wise and it turns out to be an unwise investment. All your savings are gone. The economy tanks, whatever it might be. You have a child who has serious special needs. Things happen and life changes in ways that we cannot anticipate. So again, James is not saying don't plan. I'm not saying don't plan. He's not saying that we shouldn't make plans for the future, but we do it in a recognition that God is a part of the equation. So where is the only source of security that you're going to have tomorrow and next year and the year after that? It's in God. And it would be so scary, I think, to live life 
understanding that tomorrow is totally unknown to us. It'd be so scary to live that way if you didn't believe that you have a relationship with a benevolent Heavenly Father who loves you, who not only knows the future, who controls the future, who is at work for your best interest. And if you can live your life trusting in that God, James says, wow, that's where the peace comes. That's where the joy comes, even in the midst of a chaotic world and an unknown future. So I would encourage you today, make plans to die. You need to do that. You need to do things to make sure relationships are what they ought to be, that your finances are in the best shape they can be, that emotionally you're ready, you know, when that time comes, because it could come at any time. But you need always to recognize that it's God who controls the future. And in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, our futures are so secure that we need not fear at all. The storms may come, pain may enter our lives, but we can know that we are held by a God who loves and cares for us, no matter how long our life may be. So I want you to pray with me as we acknowledge to God that we don't do this real well and ask for his help in doing it better. Uh, Heavenly Father, James reminds us that it's foolish for us to live like like we're going to live forever, like we know what tomorrow is going to bring, when the reality is that we don't. Um, Help us to see life from your perspective, to realize that, you know, compared to eternity, life is pretty brief. And that even though it's unknown to us, it's not unknown to you, and that you are always at work, you know, for our good. Help us tomorrow to trust you. Help us next year to trust you. Help us to trust you the rest of the days of our lives. Amen.